After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, once again, good morning, church. Um, if I have not gotten the chance to meet you yet, my name is Joey, and uh, my beautiful wife, Kelly, and I, we get the incredible joy of leading what God is doing here at City Alive. Uh, as Josh mentioned, we're, uh, we're a newer church. We started off just, just two years ago in the Boardman YMCA, and uh, there was just a handful of us there who were just looking to uh, be part of what God was doing and to, to see God move in a fresh way in our area. And so we were there for uh, just under a year, and in the meantime, there was a congregation that was here in this space, and uh, what God was doing here in this space was unique, and there was people here who were looking to grow, and they were looking for a pastor. And so what happened was God brought these two congregations together, and uh, just over a year ago, we started worshiping together. We thought with the handful of us that were at the Y and the handful of us that were here in this room, there'd maybe be 60 or 70 of us on a good week. And uh, it's just been incredible to see how over the last year, God has grown this church to all that it is today. And um, yeah, we can give God glory for that. So we are, we are still very much a church in progress, but I can tell you, there's perhaps no better evidence for the risen Jesus than the people in this room. There's no better evidence that Jesus is alive than my life, and I know many of you, and it's your lives as well, that Jesus is still alive, he's still saving, he's still healing, and he's still building his church. And that's why City Alive is here. I have the, the incredible joy of, of telling you about Jesus today. The incredible joy of telling you the best news that anybody could possibly tell you. We say often here that the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. And what I'm going to tell you today is not a religious program. It's not a to-do list where you have to check all of the boxes. I'm not going to give you good advice or good laws or good instructions or good encouragement. I'm going to give you really, really good news today. And you see the difference between advice or inspiration or commands or instruction and news is that all of those things are telling us what we have to do, but news is about something that's already been done for us. I want to start here in John 13. Jesus has this extraordinary ministry. 
He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He drives out demons. He's beginning to do all of these incredible things, and he's announcing the good news that God's kingdom is at hand. And on the final night of Jesus' life, he gathers his closest followers, and here's what it says, John 13, 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that was tied around him. All right, so here's Jesus' final night here before the cross. I don't know about you, but uh, when I begin to think about what kinds of things would I do if I knew that I was going to die the next day? Maybe ask yourself that question. What would you do? Would you surround yourself with family and friends and hold loved ones near? Would you go out and have some crazy party? Would you jump off of an airplane or something that was on your bucket list? What would you do? What would you do if it was your, your last night on this earth? Jesus here, he, he builds his whole ministry around these handful of guys. It says in the book of Acts that, that a few months after this time, all of Jesus' followers were together in one room, and there was about 120 of them. We have more than that here in this room today. Jesus didn't have a megachurch. Did you know that? So Jesus' whole ministry, it's built around these dozen guys. His whole ministry, years of his life, is built on these handful of guys. And guess what? Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows Peter's going to deny even knowing him. And the rest of them, even though they all say, Jesus, I'll die with you if it takes that, they all end up running away. So Jesus here, knowing all of them, all of their big promises, Jesus is making these like weird cryptic comments about I'm going to die and they think it's some metaphor they don't understand. They're not really under, uh, understanding what's happening. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to die. And they're all like, I'll, I'll go to the cross. I'll die with you, whatever it takes. And Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing that they're going to break their promises, knowing that they're going to fail to follow through, it says that he loves them to the end. And here's what I love about this story. Jesus' final night, in a few hours, he'll be arrested. In the morning, he'll be on the cross. And what does he do? He loves them to the end. I want to tell you today, Jesus loves you. And the thing about this love is it's not conditional upon our ability to follow God's standard. God's love, it's not based on my ability to do everything right and to have all of my life figured out and my ability to follow all of God's ways perfectly. You see, this story is a picture of the gospel because Jesus Christ looked out, not on a few dozen guys, but on a world of betrayers, a world of deniers, a world of forsakers. And guess what he does? He loves us to the end. It says that he tied a towel around him and he began to wash his disciples' feet. You know, in that time, most travel was on foot. No paved roads, you got some, some dusty streets. When you got home, you know, you'd probably wash your feet. And the only people that had somebody else wash their feet were people who were of some status or means to have a servant or a slave wash their feet. 
Now, the crazy thing about this final night here before Jesus goes to the cross is that Jesus, the Son of God, surrounded by people who will soon betray him, he lowers himself, he takes the place of the servant, and he begins to wash their feet. And you see, this is, what, this is what Jesus does. This is the kind of king that he is, that on his final night, instead of boasting about his title or his reputation, he comes to people who've betrayed him, who've walked out on him, who will not fulfill their promises, and he comes to us and he washes us and he loves us to the end. This is what he does. And the, the thing about this here is that it's so easy for us, especially in church, right, to put on the mask, to seem like we have everything figured out, to seem like our lives are at least somewhat put together. You know, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And we act like everything's okay because we're afraid that if people see the real us, maybe they won't love us anymore. We're afraid that if people know what we've done, they probably won't think about us the same way anymore. If they see who we really are, if they know what we really think, they probably wouldn't love us. They'd probably reject us. And so we hide. We keep certain things under lock and key from, from the people in church, from people at our work, even from our spouse. We, we keep things so that, so that people don't stop loving us, so they don't stop accepting us. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus knows us better than anybody else. In fact, he knows these guys and all of us here better than we know ourselves. And the thing is, there's this old line about the one who knows me best loves me most. That the, that the God who sees all the mess, nothing's hidden from him, nothing's out of his sight, the one who sees all the weakness, all the flaws, all the failures, is the same one who's committed to loving me and washing me and serving me and bringing me into his family. And so Jesus later this night is, is arrested. And in the morning he's on the cross. Matthew 27, 33, they came to a place, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, that was a, a, a bitter plant, and when he tasted it, he refused to drink it, and after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots, and they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. I want you to, to see something here. If you had to imagine what God is like, if you had to imagine, you know, how is God what is his posture? What is his attitude? Where is he? What does he look like? How does he feel about the things that are happening in the world? You know, most modern people would probably say, well, if there's a God, he's probably far away from here, from all this crazy world. Right? That if there's, if there's one thing that everybody on the planet agrees with, whether you're agnostic, atheist, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever you are, whatever you believe, whether you're Republican or Democrat, young or old, black or white, there's one thing that everybody agrees with, and it's that this world is messed up. 
We all agree with that one. That things aren't right. That this world is not what it should be. That there's evil, there's injustice, there's pain, there's suffering. And every time someone close to us dies, it feels like we've been robbed. That it feels like this, this shouldn't be. This doesn't belong in God's good world. This doesn't belong. How could this happen? How does, how does all this wickedness happen? And so, and we, we look out on this messed up world, right? And then we wonder, well, well, if there's a God, he's probably so far removed. He probably doesn't care. Where's God when all these different things happen? And it's easy to think that maybe God's just, if he's there at all, he's just checked out. He's just doing his own thing. And I want you to see here that that the center of the Christian message has always been that if you want to know where God is, you look at the cross. That if you want to know where is God, he's right there in the middle of the suffering and the pain and the brokenness and the evil and the injustice of this world. That if you want to know what God is like, look no further than a man on a cross. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus of Nazareth laying his life down for us. That that's what God is like. Even the risen Jesus, alive from the dead, has scars in his hands and feet. Did you know that even right now, 2,000 years later, installed at his Father's right hand as King and Lord, the risen Jesus has scars in his hands and feet. This is not a God who's a stranger to pain. This is not a God who's a stranger to the real suffering of this world. In fact, you could look at every other belief system out there, and you won't find any other God that has scars. But you see, this God has scars because he's entered into life in this world. He lived an entire life on this planet. He saw the evil, the injustice, the brokenness, the suffering. And the truth is, if you and I were, were fully honest this morning, if you could be fully honest with yourself and with God, most of us in this room, we'd probably all admit that, that the evil of this world, the, the, the messed up nature of this world, it's not just something that's like out there somewhere, but it's in here. That deep down all of us know that there's, there's something that's just not quite right, that, that things don't quite add up, that there's something missing, there's something off, there's something broken, and that it's not just that we don't know what to do, it's that even when we know what to do, we don't quite do it, right? We, we make these plans, and then we don't follow through, we have these goals, and they don't happen, and we, we, we try, and we fail, and sometimes if you're like me, you don't even understand why you're doing what you're doing. You try to do one thing, and it's like, I'm going to go left this time, I promise, and it's like, oh, I went right again, how'd that happen? It's like we just, we just know that there's not just something that's out there that's off, but it's actually within our own hearts and minds, that there's something that's just not quite right with God's world, and it's inside of all of us, that there's something that's off and broken, and that we haven't been the people that we know we should be, we haven't been the man I should be, the, the father, the husband, the worker, whatever, however you want to look at your life and your story. And what is presented to us is not a God who's some distant, far away, angry person, and maybe if you do everything right, he'll kind of tolerate you for a little bit. That's how most people feel. 
But know that if you want to know what God is like, we can see right there on the cross, Jesus the Messiah, dead, given his life in love. And so what's presented to us is is Jesus who's not like the other religious teachers out there in the world. You can look at every other religious teacher and all the great religions, all the world's great religious teachers, the only thing they can do for you is tell you what to do. They can tell you, here's who you should be, here's the kind of way you should live. You can look at all the the world's great philosophers and sages. You could even think about the people that you listen to in your life, whoever you listen to, whoever you follow online, whoever you listen to on a podcast, maybe it's a business person or a a health person, a, a motivational person, a leadership person, whatever it is. The only thing that anybody can do for you any great instructor or teacher, ancient or modern, all they can do is hand you a to-do list. But you see, Jesus is radically different because he's not a teacher. He's a savior. And the difference is that a savior does for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so what happens on the cross is there's a substitution. There's an exchange that happens. There's a, a, a sacrifice that takes place where Jesus does not say, hey, I'm showing you the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so if you want to come to the Father, it's not, hey, here's this program. It's, hey, here's my life laid down for you in love. Here's my life laid down for you in grace and mercy. And so you see what what Jesus offers us is not a program, it's not a list of laws, because the truth is we had the list of laws, and we didn't follow it anyway. And what we got instead was a Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, who rescued me and loved me when I didn't deserve it, rescued me when I didn't earn it, and he came and he saved me, and he changed my life. What happens on the cross is a substitution not an instructor, not a guide, not an expert, that if you download their PDF, you could be just like them. Not a coach who's going to push you really hard, and maybe if you're good enough, you'll be halfway like them one day. But a substitute, a substitute who, who came and took all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our pain, onto himself on the cross. And it wasn't just for my life or your life. It was for God's whole creation. All of the brokenness and dysfunction and pain came onto Jesus on the cross, and he took it onto himself. And there's a sign it says here in verse 37, they would, they would put the crimes against an individual on the top of the cross. And it says they put the charge against him in writing, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, there's, there's a heavy irony that's happening on the cross. Jesus has all along been announcing God's kingdom, God's becoming king, God's putting his world right. And then he's crowned, not with gold, but with thorns. And he's, he's lifted up, not in honor, but in disgrace. And there's a sign above his head that says, king. And here's, this is the irony, that when you look at it, it's like, 
This is the worst king. This is the opposite of a king. This king has no political power. He's got no even religious sort of power. The religious leaders are the ones who crucified him. And he's not conquering anybody. He's just dying. And he's not even going down swinging. He just kind of lays his life down. And this is the great irony of the cross. That what looks like defeat is actually the beginning of God's victory for the world. It's the beginning of God's victory over our lives. Why? Because he's a substitute. Because he's a substitute who takes on all of my sin and your sin and the brokenness of this whole world. It comes onto him on the cross. And that's why this in the mystery of God is actually the great moment of victory. Because what what looks like him being defeated is actually the powers of darkness being defeated. What looks like his body being broken is actually the power of sin being broken over your life. What looks like his defeat is actually God's victory. And so as he dies, my old life dies. My old ways die. My old nature dies because he he takes it onto himself. And so what looks like the end is actually the breaking in of God's new beginning for my life and for this world. It looks like defeat. It looks like loss. It looks like failure. And yet in the mystery of God, this is the great moment of God's kingdom breaking in. And so finally we come to the resurrection which Ayana read about. Some of these these women who were following Jesus, the men all ran away. They're still gone three days later. They're gone. These women who were faithful to Jesus in his ministry show up at the tomb. I like that it says that an angel not only rolled the stone back but was sitting on it. That's pretty sweet. So he's kicked back on the stone. And the women, to their absolute astonishment, joy, and even fear, meet the risen Jesus. Alive from the dead. And you have to imagine that, that moment, right? This isn't like, you know, he was without oxygen for four minutes and the doctors revived him and we brought him back just in time. This is the third day from his death. And you can imagine the, the absolute, like, how did this happen? What What does this even mean? And Jesus all along was telling them that he would have to die and rise on the third day. But, you know, Jesus was, he was always telling these stories and these parables. And, you know, there's always sort of this, like, mystery behind it. And they thought it was just maybe some figurative story that he was telling, you know. Hard to understand what he's saying anyways. He's just, you know, he's God in flesh, right? And so he he dies and he rises. And you see, the resurrection then is, is the other side of the coin, that if, that if the cross as this substitute is the end of my old life, then the resurrection is the beginning of my new life. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If that's that's the only thing you hear all day, that's more than enough. That the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And so now the, the, the life that I live, 
I live in Christ because, because my old life was crucified. My old life was gone. So this isn't like I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start a new chapter. Joey said I got to try harder now, so I got to start coming to church, and I got to stop doing X, Y, Z, and, and you know, I guess I'll just be a good person now. No, listen, this is not about trying to dust off your old life. This is about that old life is as dead as Jesus was on the cross, and your new life is as strong as his resurrection. That old life, it's dead. It's gone. And so you see, Jesus is not offering you a program to try harder. He offers you nothing less than a cross and a resurrection. He offers you nothing less but the end of your life and a brand new life found in him. That's what's offered to us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. How, how beautiful is this, that, that what we are offered is a totally new life, to be absolutely new. Why? Because Jesus is a substitute. That when, when he died, it was my old life dying. It wasn't just, oh, there's this thing that I now have to follow because that's what my teacher did. That's part of it. But primarily, it's that he did this thing in my place. That he came and he, he offered himself and he gave and he served and he loved. And so now, Jesus, as the risen Lord, is alive from the dead. And this isn't like Again, like a doctor bringing somebody back to life who's going to die one day, Jesus has passed through death, and death will never again have any say over him. And you see, for, for those of us who've lost someone, and I'm sure everyone has here in some capacity, death, it just, it feels so final. It feels so irreversible. That, that this messed up world with all of its craziness, all of its sin, all of its injustice, it ends in death. It's just this sad story. And you see, the death and resurrection of the Son of God means that the story has a different ending. It means the resurrection of Jesus means that sin is not the end of your story. It means that pain is not the end of your story. It means that a broken body is not the end of your story. It means that even death itself is not the end of your story. Because Jesus, the risen Lord, now reigns over all things at his Father's right hand. And he's making me new. He's making you new. And he's in the process of making the world new. And so on that, that final day... That final day, what God did for Jesus by raising him from the dead, that's a sign of what he's going to do for the whole world and the whole creation, that you and I are going to come up out of our graves and the world itself is going to be made new. And so what, what does this mean here for us today? What does this mean for our lives today? It means that Jesus, the risen Lord, is bringing us out of death and into life. He's putting our old life to death. It's gone. It's as dead as he was on the cross. And now through the resurrection of Jesus, we're a new creation. And so now you and I are the first fruits. We're the beginning. We're the advanced sign of what God is going to do for the whole creation. Revelation tells us that, that one day he's going to make all things new. The death doesn't doesn't get to write the end of the story, that sin doesn't get to write the end of the story. 
And I could, I could tell you here in this place, the reason that City Alive exists at all is because the tomb is empty. The reason there's a body of people here 2,000 years later worshiping a crucified man what, what better evidence is there for the risen Jesus than the people in this room? That you would think that, that thousands of years later we'd be, we'd be praising Caesar or some philosopher or some great military general, and yet thousands of years later, the one who's transformed the globe is a guy on a cross, is a servant who washed feet. It's a guy who gave his life as a ransom for many. And this is, this is, again, the irony of the cross. This is the king of Israel and the world that would look like defeat is the victory of God breaking in, changing one life at a time, one family at a time, one neighborhood at a time until the day when all the world is made new by his grace, when all the world is made new by his love. I could tell you, I could tell you story after story of the risen Jesus changing lives. I could, I could hand this microphone to people all around this room and they'll tell you, this isn't like I just started trying harder. This wasn't that I had to get my act together and clean up a few areas. The only explanation for my life is that I was dead and I'm a totally new creation in Christ. I could pass this microphone around and we could tell stories of the risen Jesus' power to save, to deliver, to set free. I could tell you stories of, of broken bodies that were miraculously healed in an instant. Not some placebo, not some mind trick. I mean, actually, like, in front of my eyes. I could tell you stories of, of breakthrough in people's lives who were radically addicted and in one moment everything changed and they've never been the same. I could tell you story after story of the risen Jesus who's building his kingdom and the church hasn't always gotten it right. The people of God haven't always done all the right things. That he's still working on us, he's still molding us, he's still shaping us. But what I, what I can tell you is that the story has a good ending. What I can tell you is that Jesus still saves, he still heals, he still delivers, he still sets free. And it's because unlike every other great religious teacher, the tomb is empty.